Welcome back to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. We are kicking off season two. It is 2021, y'all, and we are kicking off in high gear. We are excited to share this space with you to tell stories, educate, motivate, and move. Join me, your host, Takima Robinson, every week for real conversations as we pull back the curtain on social justice and philanthropy in America. Today on Converge for Change, on today's episode, Takima sits down with Ashley Woodard Henderson. Here's a little bit more about her. Ashley's a 35-year-old Afro-Lation, that's Black Appalachian, woman from the working class, born and raised in Southeast Tennessee. She's the first Black woman to serve as co-executive director of the Highland Research and Education Center in Newmarket, Tennessee. As a member of multiple leadership teams in the Movement for Black Lives, also known as M4BL, Ashley has thrown down on the vision for Black Lives and the BREATHE Act. She served on the Governance Council of the Southern Movement Assembly, the Advisory Committee of the National Bailout Collective, and is an active leader of the front line. She's a longtime activist who has done work with movements fighting for workers, for reproductive justice, for LGBTQIA plus folks, for environmental justice, and much more. Hello, everybody. Um, thanks to everybody who's joining us. We're going to get started in just a minute. Hey, Ash. What's up? Good to see you. Awesome. So excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, so to those of you out there, I am joined by the amazing Ashley Woodard Henderson, co-director of the Highlander Center. Ashley, thank you so much for being here today um, and engaging this conversation. Um, really a time, first of all, for us to connect because we haven't seen each other. We're right. into each other on the conference circuit and we haven't seen each other in a while. Uh, so it'll be a bit of a catch up and then really reflecting on kind of where we are, particularly um, Ashley bringing a movement perspective about um, what's happening with this latest administration, also what's going on um, with the movement work um, that we can look forward to seeing in the future. So Ash, thanks so much for being here. Mm-hmm. Um, tradition. So before we jump and we asked folks, as we've heard um, your amazing bio, but can you talk a little bit about yourself personally and maybe give us like one thing people don't know about you? Ooh, one thing people don't know. This is juicy. Um, so my name is Ashley Woodard Henderson. The homies call me Ash. I use she, her, her pronouns or anything said respectfully. And like Takima said, I'm the first black woman to serve as the executive director and a co-directorship with Alan Maxfield Steele at the Highlander Center. Um, something I'm like, I'm a Southern supremacist, which isn't the thing that people don't know about me. I love the South. I think that as goes the South, so goes the nation is not an opinion. It's a fundamental fact. Um, and yeah, I, a thing that people don't, some, some people don't know that like I was, I'm a movement baby. I was born into movement. Uh, my mom, uh, is a member of the Black Panther party and my dad, um, I'm a PK. My dad is a, is a pastor. Um, but it came to it later in life when I was born. He was actually a, a radio disc jockey. He still is in radio as a nationally syndicated show. Um, but he was a part of like the black arts and black communications infrastructure building movements in the 70s and 80s. And, um, and he, both my parents, something that people don't know about me is that both of my parents lost their jobs uh, when they conceived me. 
because my father, uh, I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and uh, the Chattanooga Police Department murdered a black man named Wadey Settles in the early 80s. And uh, of course, our people were furious and they, they led an uprising in our city to demand justice for Wadey Settles under the leadership of his daughter, Maxine Cousin, who transitioned just a couple of years ago. Um, started an organization called Concerned Citizens for Justice that's still active to this day. Um, that we, some of us youngins, like restarted uh, after Trayvon Martin was murdered. Uh, but what people don't know is that, like, the reason that my dad lost his job is because he named the police officers on the air live that wow. uh, that murdered Wadey Suttles. And uh, when he finished his show, he walked into the to the to you know the water's cooler, and they fired him, and then they fired my mom. <laughs> right after they fired him. And so uh, I was I was a, I was literally born into a family who was being impacted by fighting for justice for black people in defense of black lives uh, and against police brutality uh, with impunity. So that's something that, that people don't always know about me. Wow, that's a dope story. Um, actually, very, very dope story. Actually, my parents met um, in the middle of the Bobby Seale trial in New Haven, Connecticut. And so lots of history, shared history around being brought up in the shadows of movement. So that's dope. I, like that's a connect I actually didn't know we had. Very, very interesting and clearly has shaped who you are, which we get to, you get to share with us today. Um, so you and I have known and been in the work, particularly um, in the South for, for quite a while, but the world is learning what we've known for a long time, that these folks in the South are bad when it comes to organizing and building movements. And I think, you know, we've all experienced, I think the big all, a very long and arduous election season that doesn't seem to ever want to end, right? We're still litigating this election. We're still trying to put it in our rearview mirror you know, particularly after January 6th. Um, but we do have a new opportunity with the new administration. And today I really want to get into um, a conversation and really hear your thoughts and reflections on, on this new administration and where the opportunities lie. But first, can you start off by sharing with our audience um, what you have known about the South? Um, and your work at the Highlander Center, your work with Movement for Black Lives, but your work as a Southern supremacist. Yeah. What have you known about the South that most folks are just coming around to understand? Yeah, I mean, I think so many things. Like one is that the South is sacred. It is a sacred space. Like, you know, in some ways, when I think about social movements that have transformed the, the realities of Black people and all people across this country, it's been in no small way because of the leadership of Southern folks. Um, you know, you don't get an abolitionist movement without the South, for example, right? The first abolitionist newspaper, in fact, was written in my home state um, in Northeast Tennessee in a, in a town called Jonesboro. It's like five minutes away from where I went to college. Um, you know, if you think about the labor movement, right? You can't talk about the labor movement and not talk about the fact that like the AFL-CIO arguably became one organization integrated uh, because of conversations that Southerners were having at the Highlander Center back, you know, back in the day, 30s and 40s and 50s, right? Like back, back even before uh, it was legal for us to be in rooms together. You can't talk about the labor movement and not talk about the battle at Blair Mountain where, you know, literally the U.S. state bombed its own citizens uh, for coming up uh, and, and waging armed struggle against their bosses in the mines, right? Like, on and on. You can't talk about, like, feminist movements. You can't talk about movements for, for immigrant folks, right? We have the southern border. Like, on and on and on. 
uh, without talking about the South. And so, you know, I feel like what I know about the South is that too often the camera is pointed at us because people are making assumptions about our, our inequities uh, when actually the story of the South is one of a long legacy of radical traditions. The, the largest, one of the largest United Negro Improvement Association chapters was in the South. When I think about the Communist Party, even for all the lefties that might be listening, they had an office in New York, they had an office in California, and they had an office in Chattanooga, Tennessee, right? Like the South is actually critical to successful radical changes in this country's trajectory. And, and I think if, if, if we fast forward from the past to the even before we fast forward to the present, you, you know, even if we're talking about the, the Black Panther Party, right? Something that, that, again, a legacy that I inherited by birth, uh, you know, the, it didn't start in California. It started in Louds County, Alabama, right? Um, and then, and then the comrades in California said, "Hey, what y'all are doing is awesome. Can we can we build it? Can we build on it?" And they said, "Yes." Uh, but it was folks like Gwen Patton in, 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 in Alabama that were building some of the most radical liberate, liberation work in the in the country, right? If we talk about Freedom Summer, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, right? On. And on and on and on. I could go for days, right? So for every story you can tell me about lynching or voter suppression or you know the origin of policing in this country being rooted in the you know the, the chattel slavery, the enslavement of African descended people, uh, you know the colonization of, of many different sovereign nations and indigenous tribes, right? Like on and on and on. We could talk about those those challenges, those those obstacles that that particularly white men rich white men in the, at that uh, have lobbed against all of us that have now become national phenomenon. But, but I think if we, if we want to be real, the, the, the purpose of understanding, to me, the, the secret of the South, the decoding of the South, isn't just to point the camera at us because of the challenges. It's about the fact that we have been busting down systems of oppression for centuries that, you know, our inheritance is winning, actually, not, not just responding to the systems of oppression that, that we also inherited, like capitalism and white supremacy and you know heteronormativity and all this stuff. So uh, what I know about the South is that we have been building multi-sector, Black-led, multi-racial united fronts that get the goods across tactical interventions for, for centuries, right? That in this contemporary moment, we've, we've been able to show people that it works, right? That the, the relationship building that happens across the South, despite the fact that only 4% of philanthropic dollars come to the largest geographic region in the United States with only, you know, with the highest concentration of black people. And to be honest, the highest concentration of LGBTQ people in the country. Um, you know, like the, the, the story of it just being a place full of homophobes is not real. Uh, though we're not a monolith, what's real is that a lot of us are down here leading really incredible social movements like Highlander, like Project South, like, you know, uh, uh, Southerners on New Ground and, and, and Alternate Roots and so many others, uh, particularly local organizations. Um, and, you know, the last thing I would say is like, if, if, you, if, we, if you don't believe it because I said it or because lots of books have been written about it um, or because, you know, you're a part of social movements and are experiencing what it is to be under the leadership of Southerners, I'd say believe it because we literally saved the country from the grips of fascism and authoritarianism, right? If you didn't believe as goes the South, so goes the nation before 2020. Surely you believe it now, considering that even before we got to Georgia, that South Carolina made a declarative statement about who would be the next president in the United States. People paid attention to South Carolina because it's, it was a black community saying, this is what we want. Um, you know, and I think that hopefully what 
even black folks learned was that we could dream even bigger, right? Um, than, than a Joe Biden in the White House, right? Than, than a Kamala Harris at his side, uh, than, than any of these, th- and any of these like, you know, people that were not saviors, but the attempt of controlling conditions, as Kayla Reed would say. Uh, so we showed you in South Carolina before we even got right. uh, Then when we get through the general again, the South saves the day, right? Uh, and not just the South, but also our, you know, our, our children of the great migration and places, other black places like Philly, right? Like, uh, you know, Detroit, come on, man, like Michigan, um, you know, even, even Wisconsin, right? It was like, yo, man, the people in Milwaukee and Madison, it was like, right? Uh, they, they just over South a little. Right. Um, and, then, and then, you know, if that, even if that wasn't true in the general, then we turned around and, and and won the Congress, right? We got we we got so arguably the the folks that that went in in the in the most progressive Congress we've probably had in my lifetime. You know, it's like Cori Bush came out of St. Louis. That wasn't by accident. That was because of some of the great organ. Not only because she's amazing, but even more importantly than her individual goodness, it was because of the work of like Action St. Louis and like thousands of Black people and working class folks on the ground that made that victory possible. Uh, you know, although some of my comrades in St. Louis would say they're the Midwest, uh, you know, they're, I would argue they're below the Mason-Dixon line. In fact, the Missouri Compromise tells me they're Southern, right? So, um, you know, but even if that wasn't true, again, like Georgia, you know, the incredible work, even that didn't get us all the way over the line, like like the incredible organizing people did in Florida, um, that only didn't win because of state sanctioned interventions, um, you know, on and on and on. There's so many examples. That's all of that happened before you found out that Georgia flipped the Senate, right? right. So, so then Georgia flips the Senate, and on at the, the time we were supposed to be celebrating the Capitol, literally, the day that we're supposed to be like, we did that. Let me tell you how we end up dealing with white supremacists trying to stop an election, and let, and we should be clear. To Kim, I think that's an excellent point you're making. Because it wasn't just because they were, you know, mad racist people. That's some of that's true. Some of that's true. But they were literally saying that this black led, multiracial, working class centered, multi sector movement, the largest social movement in US history, right? Like those same people that were in the streets protesting, many of those people were also voters. Those voters were also people that organized. Those people that organized were also people that like are cultural bears, right? Like there, it was all of us doing all of the things that made that possible. They were saying y'all don't get to choose even though we were a numeric minority. No, and we can take it violently if you if you do, if you do. Right. Now, but you can't, you can't do that. Let, let my black self walk up to the Capitol. Never once, right? And even in my state capital, I don't get away with just walking in however I want to, right? Um, but the law enforcement folks literally walked them out and sent them back home to us, right? So the, again, this is what's so wild to me about the narrative of the South in, in, the, in this context, Akeem, because it's like, we went from the nation, particularly folks from liberal to progressive to the left, celebrating the South in big, bold, and bad ways, right? People were like, man, the South, y'all are so awesome. Go South, go, like, let's do this. To making fun of the South for being the place that sent the hillbillies to the Capitol, Mm -hmm. like that. 
We went from the saviors of democracy to the to the butt of national jokes in 2.5 seconds, right? Mm. And so there's some there's something to this around not just pointing the finger at others around not understanding the importance of the South and really being self-critical about the ways that even our social movements degrade and ignore the important contributions, not only historically of the South, but right now. Absolutely. And see the South as a critical and maybe the critical asset um, to change the playing field. And so we're going to definitely get back to Georgia and talk a little bit about what's going on down there. But I do want to get back to this idea that you said that we need a vision bigger than the Biden administration. Yeah. And part of what we want to do is reflect a little bit on the work to date. We know yesterday they rolled out the infrastructure plan. They've been dropping executive orders um, and they've been rolling out COVID vaccinations. I mean, vaccinations like, you know, pancakes at IHOP. Right. Um, so, you know, I think it's important. I think it's really important to give credit where credit is due. And yet. Right. I want you to fill in that blank. What is the more that they can do and what is the vision um, that you have with Highlander, your movement, brothers and sisters, movement for black lives? You know, what is the larger vision and agenda um, and where is the administration measuring up and what more is their opportunity to, to do? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think to start, I would say that, you know, whether it's Highlander or the movement for black lives or the front line, which is a. Uh, a campaign that, that the Movement for Black Lives Electoral Justice Project, uh, the Working Families Party United We Dream Action, and the Women's March, among others, helped to, to start because we could see that the election would not be won if we didn't build the biggest we possible. Um, and, you know, we built that big we. Um, and we supported work all over the country, uh, whether it was election defense or joy to the polls or political education to understand and make meaning of the moment, just so we had space to understand what the heck was happening. Um, in that campaign, we were like, yo, okay, like after we get through November, there's still going to be work to do in the first hundred days because like M4BL has consistently said under Kayla Reed's leadership is like, yeah, we, we are not voting for saviors. We are voting for conditions. Um, and that work won't be over just because we shift the administration. That that the reality for particularly the most directly impacted by systems of oppression, the targeted and marginalized communities in the United States, both black communities and working class communities, undocumented folks, disabled folks, queer folks, et cetera, uh, gender nonconforming folks, all of the marginalized, right, are disproportionately impacted also by neoliberalism. So we knew that if we didn't stay together and get ahead of the demands that we would get crumbs from the, literally crumbs from the master's table and not the transformative justice that we actually voted to see, right? Um, and let me not be, let, let me not confuse you. I think it is real that we can do some significant harm reduction through the policy work uh, that we're demanding. I think we can even create some opportunities for transformation of the state as we understand it. And I think both Highlander, the Movement for Black Lives, and many, many other organizations across the country are saying, even as we do that work, there's still a need to build the alternative where we're actually self-governed, we're actually self-determining our conditions, we're building translocal independent political power. So there's there's multiple lanes, right, to do this work. But the question is about Biden. So we're gonna talk about Biden, right? Up to date, like to, well, not almost, till yesterday, right? As of the 31st, mm -hmm. Biden had signed 
31 executive orders, or no, sorry, 37, 37 executive orders. He signed 13 presidential memoranda. He signed 32 proclamations and nine notices. Now, all of those things have different levels of power, right? They have different implications, right? Some of these things folks have been working on for decades, if not centuries, right? So I want to be clear, uh, many of these things, right, whether it's the, the redressing our nation and federal government's history of discriminatory housing policies and practices, right? These things around like making sure that we're fighting a back against racism and xenophobia toward Asian American folks and Pacific Islanders, especially in a moment, uh, you know, this, that happened before Georgia last, like what was that, last week, week before last, right? So the attack on our, on our Asian uh, sisters uh, in Atlanta, so there's, there's many of these things are, are not terrible things, right? Like directing agency to, agencies a, a, across the administration uh, to, to be in touch and follow the leadership of, of indigenous communities, right? Like, uh, like this is not bad stuff, right? Uh, we could keep going uh, the among them. But what we know is that they're like steps in the right direction. They are not in and of themselves the solution, especially considering one, we don't know how much power some of these new bodies that he's created actually have to implement, right? right. Or to hold accountable uh, the systems that have been disproportionately like negative to our communities and harmful to our communities, one. Two, the timeline for some of this stuff is actually over two two terms, right? Like if you I actually pay attention to it's about eight years worth of work, right? Uh, but, you know, how many of y'all can talk about the fact that, like, your neighbors, your cousins, your siblings are out of work right now, right? Right now. Like, if we're talking about Black women in particular, like, almost the entirety of the job loss in, in December of last year coming into this new administration were Black women. Majority women of color altogether, right? And then disproportionately Black women at that. So the long story short is that these these executive orders to me and I think to many of our movements are like yeah like we see you we see you making moves and I want to be clear about a couple of things one is Biden is not doing that just because he's a good person he's not doing that because he's besties with Obama he's not doing that because he just loves black people he's doing that because we made it politically impossible for him not to concede something that's right, right? He had to give us something because he. there's no way he would be the president of the United States had we not literally put our lives on the line. And I mean that in a couple of ways, right? We put our lives on the line because we stood in long lines to vote uh, in a global pandemic before <laughs> or a vaccine was available. We put our lives on the line because white supremacists were literally threatening some of our lives at the time. I, I literally had security with me and my family when I went to go vote. Um, and many of of us had to develop it in our communities to make sure that people could go and vote safely because white supremacists were scaring people from the polls. They were getting misinformation, et cetera. Also had to defend our people and make sure they were protected to be able to exercise their right because the state was doing everything in their power to make sure people couldn't vote, right? Voter ID, you know, making sure that like formerly incarcerated people got re-enfranchised, right? People that were, and y'all know, most of the incarcerated people in this country actually haven't been convicted of anything. And so they should still be able to vote, right? Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? There were just all these obstacles to doing what is actually like innately what we should be able to do. We should be able to make choices about governance, right? 
So for all of those reasons, we risked a lot. And guess what? Those risks, those relationships, that organizing, those interventions actually is what made it possible that Biden could be in this position to make executive orders in the first place. And I would articulate the same thing for the members of the 117th Congress. So now that he's in and he's making these steps, that's only gotten us to like the pre-2016 levels of normal. Right, right, right. That's actually what we deserve. So normal's not enough. That's that's what I would articulate to our comrades, right? It's clear uh, that, you know, prisons and, and militarized policing are racist. They're brutal. They tear our families and our communities apart. Biden's orders around prisons and policing were a start. Sure. But it affected less than 10% of the prison population. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So again, it's like, like claim, claim no easy victory, <laughs> but claim every single one of the mugs that you can get, right? Um, but let's not stop there, right? Like if, if we're talking about the housing EO, that's awesome. It's definitely unprecedented, but so is the, cri- the level of crisis, right? Black women are most likely to lose their homes despite stay-at-home orders that are now quickly being lifted all across the country, right? So what are we supposed to do with those people if the infrastructure and the, and the stimulus and the recovery money is actually really limited? So what do you want, Ashley? You got all these complaints about Joe Biden. He's not doing enough. Well, then what the hell do you expect him to do? He's only been in there. He ain't even been in there for 100 days, right? I get it. I get it. But what's real is if people, if, if our people were willing to put them, literally put their bodies on the line, right? And I'm not just talking about relatively able-bodied, relatively young people like myself. I'm talking about like 90-year-old grandmamas that stood in line for four hours to be able to do it, knowing that we couldn't bring them water without risking arrest, right? People that literally went out and registered in the state of Tennessee, knowing that the state was actively trying to pass legislation to criminalize people for registering people to vote, right? If, 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 if we were willing to take those kinds of risks, then is it really asking too much to ask the person who benefited off of those risks to actually give us what they owe us? I think that's the moment we're in. And I think that what my hope is, is that we, we move the Biden administration to, to take bigger and bolder risks as he sees and as the Congress sees that the constituency is still activated, right? I think what people expect of movement is that we we mobilize really hard to get Trump out, to get Biden in, and then we're like, whoo, did that, congrats, we can take a break. We actually can't afford to take a break right now, y'all. And I think that like, the, the reality for me is that we need big, bold champion of, of, of 2021 and, right. and, 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 and 20, 20, like 31 solutions, right? To, to be able to meet the level of crisis now. And I say that, because the crisis is compounding, right? As the crises intersect, as COVID, as, as man-made climate change, as white supremacist violence, as other forms of state-sanctioned violence collide, we're, we're putting platinum policy band-aids on those gaping wounds that actually aren't keeping our people safe. One, they're responding to the lack of safety. And two, it's like, even if it was meeting the immediate need, the next crisis is on the horizon every time, right? So even if we were just talking about the South, and and I know this is true across the country, but even if we were just talking about the South, we got through the election and the many crises that were were intersecting there, white supremacist violence, you know, (laughs) all of it, right? Yeah. We made it through the insurrection. 
we got hit with a snowpocalypse where people made fun of us for not being able to like get through a snowstorm when really what they don't understand is the infrastructure of the South is literally not, the state literally doesn't build up infrastructure to support folks that are not supposed to have temperatures that low, right? It wasn't the snow, it was the ice, right? So it's like, people are like, oh, you know, y'all should have it. It's like, no, the state literally abandoned people. Ted Cruz, literally a person who, who hates immigrants, literally left the country and went to the very place that he said is the origin of all things that harm the United States as a racist, right? Ted Cruz literally left the country, like he left his constituents who didn't have power, who didn't have access to water, right? We, we made it through that and tornado season started, right? We get through tornado season and guess what it'll be? It'll be, you know, all too well, it'll be hurricane season. It'll be fire season, right? So if we don't start being visionary with big proactive, you know, as Andrea Ritchie says, like a thousand miles ahead of the harm kind of solutions, we're going to keep being in response mode. So, so still, actually, what do you want? Well, I think that what the movement for black lives and, and the people's bailout and, and the front line and working families, so many people, rising majority, all of these incredible organizations, uh, the national domestic workers, right? Like all of these folks have been very clear about not only their individual front lines policy demands, but also have continuously come together to merge policy demands. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, talk, I'm gonna shout out a couple. One is the Thrive Act, right? Um, and you can find it if you just Google search Thrive Act or go to thriveact.org, you'll find it. Um, but essentially, it's it's asking for Congress to pass and for Biden to support a, a, a comprehensive economic recovery package, right? That moves us not just relief, but recovery money, right? I'm talking about the scale of like a trillion a year. Right. Because what we know is that if, if we're just throwing millions or billions of dollars at this problem, it actually isn't going to get people out of the hole that they're in. Right. It would mean like actually supporting the Green New Deal. Shout out to the Green New Deal Network and shout out to like Colette Pichon Battle and Valencia Gunder, all these incredible black climate justice activists that always get ignored, uh, but that are building a red, black and green New Deal for black America. Right. Like we need we need. A, 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 an economic stimulus package that is good for people and for the planet. Absolutely. Right? We need infrastructure that's good for our people and good for the planet. We need 15 million jobs. 15? 15 period. Like nothing less. Even 10 million is too few. Right? We need for as Biden is thinking about infrastructure money, 50% of those investments, if we're, if we're talking about equity, right? If we're talking about equity, then 50% of those investments need to go to communities on the front line. Right? We need to be big and bold, and 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 these are not these are not apple pie in the sky demands. They're actually the demands of our people being articulated in policy. Right? It's absolutely possible. So the Thrive Act would be one thing that I said we had to do. And then the 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 last three I would say is like folks should check out the Breathe Act. Right? The Movement for Black Lives heard the demands of our people in the street. I've heard everything up to a hundred million people in the street over the summer that we're demanding not only the divestment of our do- of our taxpayer dollars from policing and incarceration, the sort of punitive bureaucracy of the state, uh, but to invest those dollars, right? The demand, the demand didn't start at defund the police. The demand started at divest and invest. Right. That's what it said, right? Um, the, the demand to defund is a part of that, right? And, and I think that the Breathe Act actually does those four things, right? It divests dollars from, from this carceral state, right? It reinvests those dollars 
community solutions that are actually, again, a thousand miles ahead of harm to build healthy, sustainable, and equitable communities. It creates new pots of money that continue to incentivize folks to, in their communities, move further and further away from harmful and racist policing structures and criminalization and incarceration that is not helpful for our people and, and, and incentivizes them the further away from it they go, that there's even more money to be able to do those, those solutionary programs. And then it puts in policy that also holds the elected officials accountable to it, right? So the Breathe Act is also an incredible alternative. It hasn't been introduced yet because I know people have questions about that. But part of the reason it hasn't been introduced yet is because the, the organizing strategy is actually from the bottom up, not from the top down, right? So what we've seen is people uh, like on the ground calling their legislators and being like, we want you to champion this. Not because I'm mad at you for not knowing about it, but because I believe that you should be a champion for the Breathe Act. And so we have hundreds of thousands of community co-sponsors of the bill already. Um, and we've already seen people start to introduce it on the state level and win. You might have heard that the Illinois Breathe Act passed in totality, y'all. Like, shout out to Equity and Transformation in Chicago, all the other comrades up and down the state of Illinois that made that possible. So the Breathe Act is another thing. And the last two that I would, I would remiss not to shout out because I think it would, it's actually, it me, in some ways, uh, some of the most important legislation that I think we need to not forget. Um, and I say that, I mean, so Kim, you've been knowing me since I was like little bitty. Like, I'm new to this policy game. And to be honest, a few years ago, I would have been like, that policy stuff, yeah, you know, that's not my jam. Um, but actually, like, when our, when our elders and ancestors said by any means necessary, they meant by all the means, which includes policy work. Um, and I think that if we ignore these two bills, we'll actually be in a world of hurt. So I want to talk about HR1 and HR4. Yeah. So there, there are two bills in Congress right now that to me, and I think to like folks like Fair Fight, Stacey Abrams organization down in Georgia, uh, shout out to Hillary Holly, who has been raising a lot of alarm around the lack of noise around support for HR1 and HR4 um, and, and the attacks on our folks in Georgia. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about more, but um, HR1 and HR4 are like critical voting infrastructure bills. And if we don't get those passed, that, like if we don't get those passed on the, on the federal level, we are in for a world of hurt come next year. <laughs> like yeah. a world of hurt. So I think we really got to pay attention to these bills that are that are actively trying to give us more ability to vote um, and not let like a minority of white supremacist, racist, uh, you know, folks from 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 across our states uh, stop those bills from passing. If we do. Uh, I think we'll see a slippery descent back to to even pre twenty sixteen, uh, you know, victories that we've won. So, so it would be a rollback of all of the fights that we've won around being able to reenfranchise our. Absolutely. I mean, actually, I think everyone needs to hear that, understand that, and understand that this is the fight for literally the democracy, right? If this goes, social <laughs> democracy stuff is a big deal, y'all, and it's I know it's hard to understand. Who knows what a filibuster is and all that kind of stuff, like we actually really do have to know about it um, because the the opposition actually benefits off of, of, of us not knowing. And so I think that's that's a critical like next step is like actually investigate HR1 and HR4 and the Breathe Act and Thrive and the Green New Deal. Understand how those things are showing up in these infrastructure bills. So even if what you heard from Biden yesterday didn't click, it's actually because of the work of like the Sierra Club and all these black climate justice activists and folks that have been doing economic justice work, domestic and care workers, shout out to the folks that worked on the CARE Act. Like we're seeing the victories of that work. 
um, in the in some of these bills, even though it's just taste of some of what we want. It's the beginning of a of a bigger sort of snowball that we hope to see come from some of these policy interventions. And then I think the last thing is again, you you all are watching and listening to this podcast. You to keep like are people that made this stuff happen. So it is not. Uh, I find it not to be demanding too much to say that the people have spoken, uh, that we want transformative change, that we showed up in record numbers, not only in 2020, but also in 2018 to make this possible. And, you know, we wanted a new Congress. We wanted a new president. And we built this broad multiracial coalition that was black led and turned out and voted and won. And we expect that this transformational change that we voted for actually show up you know, in, in, in the first hundred days, it's not too much to ask. So we need the Democrats to actually have some backbone and be the champions. We voted them in. Let's, let's talk about that. Have some backbone. And I think the point that you made early in the podcast, and even as we were pre-gaming before this, this whole idea that this battle against white supremacy includes neoliberalism. And we need to remember that, right? We will need to remember where the ideas that are moving forward are coming from and give credit to those organizers, those activists, those thought leaders. And we need to continue um, to stay the course. Because again, um, if we can't move HR and H, you know, HR one and HR four, it's a wrap. I mean, it really, right is a wrap. We are at an existential crisis, I think, as a democracy, if we can't figure that out. And it all depends on the courage of the Democratic Party uh, and whether or not they are willing to be extremely bold. And so um, I think we've got a huge fight coming um, our way on this. I'm also super excited, though, to see the work that our sister Latasha Brown, who we had on a few weeks ago, shout out to Latasha, and just like, Remember, like folks have just been at it for a really long time, right? So now we deliver the presidency, we deliver um, the Congress, and now we got to go fight, you know, in the state legislatures against these horrible voting rights restrictions bills. Folks aren't getting, to your point about breathing, uh, even an opportunity to breathe. So this constant onslaught is part of, you know, the the offensive strategy, right? That we are constantly under attack, whether it be by managing crises or just managing, you know, the constant attack um, from the other side. So, you know, my thoughts um, or your thoughts as, as we move forward and start to wrap up our time together, I can't believe we've run out of time so quickly. Um, but where do you see hope? Where do you see hope um, in the future, um, particularly as the movement holds this administration accountable? Um, and we also begin to see, you know, the things that we're doing being better resourced. Where do you see hope? Yeah, I mean, I think that some some of my people see hope because they they see more representation, right? Um, I think like some some people in my community are like, oh, it really matters that Cori Bush is up there dealing with these people, or that Ayanna Presley and Ilhan Omar, like these black women are up, th they in there, these regular regular black girls. Oh my goodness, right? Um, you know, it, it might not be my positionality, but I, I see what it means for little black girls in my neighborhood to see Kamala Harris and they got their little chucks and pearls on, right? Like some of that stuff really does matter um, to our people. And I think we've got to meet our people where they're at. I think where my hope lies, though, is not leaving them where I found them mm -hmm. um, and, and, and seeing them be like, oh, you know what? Like 
whether they use the language of austerity or whether they use the language of neoliberalism or whether they use the, the language of necrocapitalism where some people you get to pick who lives and dies based on how much money they've got access to, right? Um, it's seeing people be woke to that and be like, oh, like, yeah, the fight, the fight's not done. I still got some fight in me. Yeah. Uh, you know, what gives me hope is like, uh, was, uh, my friend and comrade Eric Ward says this often is like, what happens if the reason all this is happening is because we're winning, right? I feel hopeful, not in a like naive, like, I believe that we will win, we shall overcome, just like non-scientific way, though I, you know, I'm a Gemini, so sometimes I feel that way as well. Um, I feel hopeful because of an informed reality that like they're responding to us. The reason that the white right is losing their minds right now isn't just because they're worried, they're just worried about becoming a numerical minority. It's because not only do they see themselves becoming a, a numerical minority, we're also winning more and more and more collective liberation for our people. That means that folks have to share power. They've got to share resources. And though there is an abundance of them, when you've been hoarding all of them to yourself, <laughs> it can be a little scary, right? I think what I, so I feel a lot of hope. I feel hopeful because the movement for Black Lives is stronger than it's ever been. Um, despite the many attempts at like organized, you know, uh, uh, organizing Black people away from each other. Right, COINTELPRO, surveillance, criminalization, yada yada. We've got miles to go to be the kind of movement that Black people deserve. But we are like the work that they're doing inspires me every day. The the 150 plus organizations that are doing work on the ground. Right, we don't get a national and international movement without folks doing local work. And that commitment to building local power inspires me. Seeing work like the Southern Movement Assembly, people practicing alternative governance structures, both in our movements and in our communities, right? Seeing like people push back and build alternatives to philanthropy as we know it, like the Southern Power Fund, right? I feel so proud of that work. Uh, people told us, you know, we wouldn't be able to do it. We moved $4 million in a month to grassroots organizations all over the South, and we didn't ask them for a thing. In fact, I had to beg people to fill out the form because people didn't believe it was real. <laughs> So I'm, I'm proud of us. I, I see more people understanding and executing mutual aid, filling in the gaps the states fed our people over and over and over again. And I've seen us win on demands that people told us were impossible dreams, right? Be fund included. Um, you know, people people are talking about abolition. People can name Angela Davis and Ruthie Gilmore, Mariam Kava, right? Like I just I see it, right? I, I think uh, I think about Norma Long, who's just an incredible teacher. Um, who often talks to us about about horizons, about like being able to see where you want to be. It's right there. You can see it, but you can't yet. And I feel like that's that's the moment we're in. Right. It, we're in this moment where we can see what black liberation could be like. Right. We could see what it would look like to build a, a, an, eco, an economic system in this country that isn't harmful for anybody. Mm. Right. We can imagine like utopian visions that aren't impossible dreams for for what we deserve versus what we would concede to. And 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 we just we're right. We're right there. We're right at the lump. I feel like the thing that cautious that I feel cautious about is like not to let money, ego and credit make us trip over our shoelaces before we get to the horizon. Um, you know, and I think that the there's some critical questions we have to answer around like how to be accountable to one another in ways that don't don't replicate harmful practices of ripping each other apart 
I think we've got to start to have real like uncomfortable conversations about whiteness that we dodge very often. Um, and maybe but some of us do because in the absence of us actually having those conversations about white people, about communities of faith and, and how they relate to movements, et cetera, the South rural communities, we're creating vacuums that, that our opposition are filling, right? The reason that white people join white supremacist organizations isn't always just because they're racist, it's because they're looking for a place to belong. And then they, they're you know brainwashed in believing white supremacy is good for them, right? So I think, I think there's questions to answer in this moment for sure. It's not an uninformed, naive, optimism but but where my you know Miriam says often that the hope is a discipline and I feel like where I'm finding and, and cultivating hope is that I'm seeing not only us win but I'm seeing us win in ways that are like collective together yeah. multi-tactical cross-sector um and and celebrating that you know and, and celebrating the victories particularly that are led by black women's sacrifices like Stacey and, and Ense and Latasha and and, and people that were doing that work decades even before people knew who they were. Right, absolutely. Absolutely, and I think that that's the thing is I'm, I'm most proud of the wins that come about in those ways, right? Because yep. we know that the dividends of those wins um, are deep. And, you know, having been part of, you know, these types of coalitions led some of that work, particularly in Louisiana, what I have I've always said to folks, if we win, we win. If we lose, we win. Because this, the coalition, the uh, creating a table where folks understand that they belong, building the muscle of working together, that's the win, right? That is the win. And so um, I always thank you. And I, I also actually, I want to say this to you personally, I appreciate how you show up as a person in the work. Right. Because I think the work is hard um, and it's difficult. It is so easy to, again, get caught up in ego and money and power um, or just the stress and the fatigue of all of it. And I just appreciate how you show up as a person um, and always sort of remind us about our humanity and um, about also how we show up and treat each other in the work, because it, that is what matters. Right. Like we may not make it to that horizon um, or we I I may not make it in my lifetime to that horizon, but knowing that we're headed that direction um, and that we're building each other, ourselves and each other up along the way is for me the win, you know? And I really appreciate you for always, your your IG page and, and your posts are always a reminder that it matters how we get there. And I really appreciate you for that. No, thank you so much for all you've done and all you continue to do for Southern Freedom Movement and everybody, we appreciate you. All right. All right. So we're going to get ready to wrap up and I do three quick rapid fire questions with everybody. It's so interesting to hear different people's response. And so we'll wrap up with those. Hit me. So first of all, what is justice? Justice is righteousness in practice. Hmm. So, all right. Righteousness in practice. I'm going to sit with that one. What is freedom? Mm. Being able to do whatever I want to do, which is like not always movement stuff, right? Like, I think freedom and freedom to me, I'll know I'm there when when like work is a word that I don't even understand the meaning of anymore. Right. Like to me, it's like actual freedom is being able to to do what you want to do <laughs> and have the, the access and resources to do that in a way that doesn't harm anybody else, where everybody else gets to also do what kind of what they want to do, um, especially when it builds the communal good. Right. It's like. To me, it's like it goes back to that question around utopian visions. It's like 
in my Utah, I remember I was doing a, a people's movement assembly around protecting and defending communities to end state violence. And I was working with some really cool young people in South Atlanta. Shout out to Project South Institute for the Elimination of Poverty and Genocide. They were Project South Youth. Um, these young people are black. They are teenagers. They live in South Atlanta that was rapidly being gentrified. They were criminalized often, and they usually interacted with law enforcement about seven times a day. Mm. There's so many different kinds of cops in the state capitol, right? Um, the metro cops, the state cops, the school resource officers, the Atlanta PD, the county cops, yada, 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 right? And so I asked these young people what the problem was, and they were like, these cops, man, like they're, they're, they're just brutalizing our communities, right? And they're doing it to speed up the gentrification, right? It's because these white people are moving in, these rich people are moving in, they're kicking us out, and they don't like that we like walk to school in our neighborhood, what used to be our neighborhood, right? It's like, word, so tell me your utopian vision. And they went and they talked about it for a couple of minutes and they came back and they were like, we got it, Ash. I was like, bet, tell me. And they were like, I'm, a, I'm gonna paraphrase it because they were they were free with their language in the space. <laughs> um, but they were like, yo, I was like, hit me. They were like, in our utopian vision, when the cops come in our neighborhoods and they do foul stuff, we get 15 minutes in a, in a closet with them. And then after 15 minutes, then we would train them on how to never do this stuff again. They get goosebumps. Like every time I tell the story, because I was like, God, that's going to make you feel so powerful. Like you would get to like, you know, give them a little taste of what they've been giving you. And then you would do the political education work. They were like, yeah. I was like, can I ask you a follow-up question? They were like, yep. I was like, in your utopian vision, there would still be cops in your neighborhood? They were like, oh, you know, like, wait. Then they went back in the corner for about another 10 minutes. They came back. We were like, we got it. I was like, okay, tell me. And they were like, in our utopian vision, Everybody would have what they need, so there would be no harm in the first place, so there'd be no need for police, right? That was without, like, a lecture or an hour-long abolitionist, you know, workshop or whatever, right? So to me, when I think about freedom, it's, like, actually the living out of those utopian visions, which all too often, in part because of how we've been socialized not to dream and not to develop long-term visions that are what we deserve, not just what we concede to, Freedom to me then is actually being able to envision those things and then live them out, right? It's like, I don't just want to win the Thrive Act. I want to benefit from it. I don't want to just win the Breathe Act. I want to benefit from it. I want to live in a world beyond capitalism and harm. So freedom to me is, is, the, is the living of it, the doing what you want to do. And I love the acknowledgement that it also means that uh, freedom has to exist where everybody else gets their needs met, right? Yeah. I love that idea. All right. Last question. What is the one thing you can't live without? Oh, the one thing I can't live without. This is a good question. Uh, music. I can't live without music. It's probably art in general, but music in particular. Um, and it's that feels like such a Highlander answer. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a Southern and Black people answer too. It's like that's critical to our movement work. It's like, you know, I remember sitting for hours and hours just singing with like Mary Hooks and Wendy O'Neill and uh, uh, Phil Agnew, like all the all of the, all the Southern freedom, the SNCC freedom singers, right? Guy and Candy Carawan, Dr. Regan, Bernice Johnson Regan, right? All these people, I just feel like, I feel like, and now I feel like there's like a 21st century up and coming freedom song, you know, not even just in folk music or Americana. Think about the Black Joy experience and shout out to Janae Taylor, Highlander's 
cultural organizer who helped, you know, write, like I love being black. Um, just like all of these songs that, that I think keep our movements moving and all of the ways that we're starting to see like secular, you know, other art artists that are not necessarily identified as movement or activists actually showing up and showing out for our people and like being culture bears that also have some politics under their belt. Um, has been a beautiful, beautiful experience. So I think the one thing, if I had to pick one thing, I'd say the one thing I can't live without is music. I might have to agree with you on that. Um, and shout out to all the cultural workers in the movement. I mean, you keep, you hold us together, you remind us, um, you know, uh, help us keep push, pushing. So yes, shout out to all of y'all. Um, well, we've come to the end of our time together. Ashley, this was so dope. It was, um, we were long overdue to catch up. Um, I admire you, appreciate you, love you. And um, thank you so much for sharing all that you have with us today. Um, and for those of you who are out there, the show will go up, I believe, um, this weekend. So please um, share it with folks. Um, we'll have it up on the podcast website. Um, you'll also hit you up in your inbox. Uh, and thank you so much again, Ashley, for, for your time today and for your work always. Absolutely. Love and appreciate you and the Converge for Change fam. I'm just so grateful for y'all and y'all work. Awesome. Take care. Peace, y'all. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me today. Wherever you are in the world, I want to hear from you. So stop what you're doing right now. No, really right now. And follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Converge for Change. Now, after you follow me, drop me a line in the comments and let me know what you thought about this show. After that, make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're growing our tribe of social justice warriors and we want you with us every step of the way. Thanks.